started singing when the saints go marching in. I've educated them, and they're now St Kilda Saints supporters. I did not ask them to sing the song, they just did it. There are hundreds of stories, videos and songs from Aussie soldiers and their counterparts from Papua New Guinea and elsewhere in the Pacific that can be found online, just like the one that I found here. And it speaks to the finely threaded personal connections that exist between Australia and soldiers from the Pacific. These are long-standing bonds going back over decades, connections now maintained through social media and WhatsApp accounts when 20 or 30 years ago, they would have been maintained through airmail letters. There are strong institutional connections too, which you can see if you go to any military office in the Pacific, which are veritable Aladdin's caves of statecraft memorabilia. I can remember about 10 years ago at Cook's Barracks, named for Captain Cook, of course, in Port Vila, Vanuatu. And I found myself inside the office of a commander in Vanuatu's quasi-military mobile force. And it was filled with keepsakes, trophies, certificates, and all those little coins that military people give to each other. The gifts were from all over the seven seas, from France, Australia, the United States, from a visiting British ship. But the splendor of the scene inside the commander's office then didn't really reflect the exterior of the barracks. It was all a bit shabby, a bit dilapidated and forlorn. The only thing that was new inside Cook's barracks was this cache of machine guns that the French gendarmes had dropped off for a training a few years back and hadn't got around to collecting again. There really hadn't been that much upkeep of Cook's barracks since independence in 1980. And when I visited, Australia had reduced its defence imprint significantly. And it was in places like this my sense was how little there was to do for all the men that were sitting around playing cards and staring at their 2G phones. That was then. This is now. More than a decade has gone by since my visit. And as I continued my quest to understand the impacts of statecraft and great power competition in this region, I wanted to see how much Cook's barracks had changed, given Vanuatu's increasing prominence in the game of geopolitics. And so I got in touch with a renowned Pacific correspondent based in Port Vila, and I asked him to go visit Cook's barracks 10 years on. My name is Ben Bahain. I'm a photojournalist and producer based here in Vanuatu for a long time, 20 years. Well, it's a Tuesday morning here in Port Villa, and uh, I'm at the VMF headquarters, also known as Cook's Barracks. And there's a significant upgrade going on here, cooperation between the Australian Defence Force and the Vanuatu Mobile Force, 
dozens of new buildings going up. Looks like there'll be barracks and quarters for soldiers. There'll also be uh, armories and places to park all their transport vehicles. They're also talking about creating facilities to pre-position material ahead of uh, natural disasters. Vanuatu is the most disaster-prone country in the world and really facing the challenges of climate change. So part of the defence cooperation is geared around increasing assistance with climate change and some of the challenges that comes from rebuilding and the aftermath of very devastating cyclones and potentially earthquakes. So I'm wandering around Cook's Barracks and speaking to both the VMF and the Australian Defence Force Defence Attaché to talk about some of the upgrades going on here at Cook's Barracks. We're trying to do these interviews this morning because Tropical Cyclone Judy is beating a path towards us, already getting alerts that a Cat 2 cyclone is moving through the northern parts of Vanuatu. And here in Port Villa, we're expecting it to hit us tomorrow. We're starting to get rain and, and wind as the cyclone starts to affect us here in Port Villa as well. And as the wind started to whip and the rain started to pour, Ben sought out Lieutenant Colonel Scott Jameson, Australia's defence attaché in Vanuatu, for more information about this new building work. Um, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Scott Jameson. I'm Australian defence attaché to Vanuatu. Our relationship here at the moment, there's a big focus on the work we're doing on the Cooks Barracks reconstruction, but our work with Vanuatu on infrastructure is not a new thing. And so whilst Cook Barracks is a new initiative, the work that we've done with the VPF on infrastructure has actually gone all the way back to the 1980s. And so the Vanuatu Police Force Headquarters, for example, or Taroas Barracks up in Santo, also locations that have been constructed by ADF engineers or ADF with contracted support and also with the help of the VMF engineers as well. Okay. How has the defence assistance sort of evolved, let's say, over the last 10 years? Because I think originally there was just one defence attaché posted here, but it seems like there's a lot more kind of cooperation going on now. Um, so we've got a couple of permanent embedded advisors that work with the Police Maritime Wing and the Vanuatu Mobile Force every day. That's where they live and work. The major kind of flagship projects we work on at the moment, uh, one is just over my left shoulder here, and that's the Cook and Taroas Barracks rebuild. The second is Vanuatu's new Guardian class patrol boat, which is the same patrol boat that's being produced and rolled out across the Pacific for those nations inside the Pacific Islands Forum. The fourth is the Vanuatu government emergency radio network. And so we're still in the process of continuing construction of that, but that provides both a high frequency and a very high frequency radio network, and it links all of Vanuatu's provinces together. So prior to that being established, the only comms between the provinces was by mobile phone or internet. And every time a cyclone comes through a particular province, it generally knocks down at least one mobile phone tower. And then as a result of that, the local community and potentially the provincial headquarters loses communications with the rest of the outside world. So the focus of the project is to link the provinces together and to provide something that's climate and disaster resistant and resilient so that should an antenna go down, the VPF and the Vanuatu government have spare antennas, can deploy new radio sets to go and re-establish comms. So those three, I guess, large projects are underpinning most of our work together at the moment. Um, and so we've had teams come out, we've had project engineers here to manage the build for Cook and Taroas Barracks. We've had communicators here to build the emergency radio network with the VPF, so that's been done as a joint build. And then we've got our maritime advisors working with the maritime wing on the Guardian class patrol boat and its employment.
Morning again, uh, my name is uh, Major David Colors. I'm the uh, current officer commanding the National Support Unit of the Manatu Power Force. It was starting to bucket down now with rain, and so Ben had to use all his journalistic wiles to persuade the commander of the Vanuatu Mobile Force to step out of his office and step into the storm. Starting on my right, there's a logistic precinct. It consists of engineers' workshop, and including a mechanical workshop, armory, a magazine depot, and behind them there's about 11 married quarters. Further up, there's two barracks that can house about 150 total soldiers and a new van hut, including on my left here, the officer's mess, classroom, uh, other ranks mess, and a new fire station, including a new medic, chaplain, and a guard hut. And what do you think is driving the increasing cooperation between the ADF and the VMF? Well, I think it's a common understanding that since Vanuatu is very prone to natural disasters, Australia has decided to assist us uh, a lot, especially in responding to HADR operations. And with the current improvement of infrastructure, will greatly boost our morale in dispensing our duties professionally. Not also that, but in the past, we find it very difficult to store our humanitarian assistance and disaster response equipment. But with the new infrastructure, we will not be having any more problems with that. So climate change is obviously one of the drivers. Do you think geopolitics is also a driver in this? Personally, I think there is some drive behind that, but I'm not in a position to address that. A couple of days after Cyclone Judy, Ben's communications were restored. We got back in touch and I began by remarking to him just how different Cook's barracks seemed to be in 2023 compared to the rather sleepy place it was when I went there in 2013. When I was up there as well, probably 12 years ago, running that photo course to establish the first photo unit for the VMF, it sort of felt like a school, like a primary school or even a, a sort of summer camp, you know, old fibro homes and everything. I mean, it was being looked after in that kind of Melanesian way, but um, certainly nothing flash. And it looks like, you know, it looked like there hadn't been anything new really done in that area since it was probably first established around the time of independence. But yeah, it looks like, you know, at least a dozen or two kind of new buildings going up and new quarters for soldiers, armories, you know, places to put all the trucks, that kind of thing. And the ostensible reason for all this new work is concern about climate change? Yeah, look, Vanuatu, like a number of other Pacific or most of the Pacific countries and as a position by the Pacific Island Forum, have stated for, I'd say, close to 10 years now that climate change remains the biggest security issue, the biggest sort of challenge that, that the Pacific Island region faces. So, you know, for quite a while when we had conservative governments in Australia that didn't really understand the impact of climate and how existential it was to the Pacific, I think that did create some concerns and some issues in the relationship. So certainly that has now transformed under the Labor government 
and we've certainly got to step up in terms of defence cooperation in the region. As the defence attaché mentioned, he was going to look into the actual pricing on that, which I'd asked, but they haven't come back to me. But I found some figures in a Daily Post story, I think it was, that suggested it was a couple of billion VATU. It's a substantial contribution. Australia is clearly feeling the need to invigorate its relationship with the Vanuatu Mobile Force and climate change, you know, it's all agreed, you know, climate change really is the issue they all have to confront, especially at a time when Vanuatu is pushing for this decision at the International Court of Justice. So it's trying to rally countries around the world to support this position, which will basically take the big polluters, which could be countries or companies, potentially to court. So that's creating some concerns, obviously, among big polluters. The Vanuatu Prime Minister was in Australia about two weeks ago, and Australia has agreed to support Vanuatu's position on that, as has most of the Pacific. So yes, that's one of the big diplomatic initiatives Vanuatu is taking, which is really geared around climate change. And of course, you know, just in the last couple of days, we've had a major Cat 3 cyclone come through, hit us here in Vanuatu. We're expecting another Cat 3 to come through on Friday. So, you know, the big problem, and it's not just Vanuatu, it's countries all over the world are facing is you get hit with a climate disaster, like a big cyclone, and barely within a year or two, you've had almost no chance to really recover, and then you get hit with another one. And so it's these compounding climate disasters that are really pushing a lot of countries in the majority world, if you like, into hardship. And are there any, you know, geopolitical storm clouds that are also affecting the decision to make this big investment into the refurbishment of the barracks? Undoubtedly, there'll be an element of concern around China's growing influence in the region. And we've seen that manifest in a whole bunch of places like the Solomons and Kiribati and elsewhere. Vanuatu and China have a very, very good relationship that goes back to independence. China has supported Vanuatu in a, in a number of ways, both in terms of aid and defense cooperation. One of the things, I guess, that a number of people were concerned about was when Australia sort of dropped the ball a little bit, let's say seven or eight years ago. I had some dealings with the VMF and the then Australian defense attache, uh, Major Paul Prickett, and the VMF commander asked me to establish the first photo unit for the Vanuatu Mobile Force, which I was honored to do. The surprise came when Canberra didn't replace Major Prickett as the defense attache, someone who stayed at the VMF headquarters. And so we always had someone in uniform there. In their wisdom, Canberra decided to channel its support and influence through the AFP, through the Australian Federal Police. A number of us thought that that was not a great idea, and subsequently it proved to be so in the sense that the Australian Federal Police were kicked out of Vanuatu on allegations of spying. And pretty quickly, China stepped in with non-lethal material for the VMF. So, you know, for a period of a number of years there, China was providing non-lethal material to the VMF. The ADF had no one at Cook's Barracks and the AFP had been kicked out. So I guess there was a decision once the penny dropped in Canberra a few years ago that China really was on the march in the region and it needed to step up. So its support for the VMF has gone on the front foot but also put in some, some brand new barracks, an armory, housing for their 
trucks and all kinds of stuff. And since we're talking about climate change, they're also going to pre-position a bunch of stuff for disaster relief. So no doubt that's coming into play today and in the times ahead. So it looks like Australia does finally have people in uniform back at, at Cook's Barracks and working with the VMF. It's a long relationship. I had a brief chat to the VMF acting commander and others when I was up there. They're all happy. It's deepening the relationship. So, yes, you know, climate change and China are the two real reasons that it's necessary for Australia to increase its defence cooperation to places like Vanuatu. Ben's been based in the region for decades and he's been observing how, for the most part, many militaries in many parts of the Pacific have been poor cousins of the police, always struggling to map out a clear role for themselves. Yeah, my sense is that as a lot of these South Pacific countries won their independence through the 70s and 80s, emerging from either British or Australian, even French colonial rule, there was a sense that the police were sort of the main game, especially for smaller countries like the Solomons and Vanuatu. But there was also a decision to create a sort of paramilitary wing, if you like, so that there wouldn't be an established army other than, you know, Papua New Guinea and Fiji are, are obviously exceptions to that. But for the smaller states like the Solomons and Vanuatu, it was decided to make it a police-led approach with paramilitary wings. I guess you could say that the militaries that evolved in the South Pacific were reflections of a European, a British, even an Australian military approach, where the idea was that they would guarantee the security of the state, but not really be involved in nation building. And I guess to me, that's that's one of the clear differences between, say, Southeast Asia and the way we see the dual funksy role in Indonesia, for instance, for the military, Thailand, so many parts of Southeast Asia where the military is seen as, as a nation builder, but also very involved in the actual running of the state. And so there was probably a deliberate decision to not go down that path, which makes sense in many ways. However, I've often questioned why Australia doesn't provide more sort of engineering expertise to the militaries. And it makes total sense, I think, in our era of climate disaster and response, that there should be a role for the VMF, for the Solomons Field Force, for the PNG Defence Force, even the, the Fiji military, to be much more involved in nation building, as in infrastructure development, so that they're going in and fixing up schools and rebuilding bridges and that sort of thing, so that in the aftermath of a natural disaster, you're not sitting back waiting for the international aid community to swoop in. You've already got a military that can scale up and, and move in. But equally, I think at this point in their evolution, you may as well have those militaries out there actively involved in, in helping these developing countries both weatherproof their infrastructure and be seen by their people as, as actually assisting the country in the periods running up to disasters and, of course, in the aftermath of those disasters. As Ben was battening down the hatches in Port Vila for yet another cyclone, I was being introduced in Port Moresby to a man with a well-stamped passport who knows all there is to know about defence cooperation programmes. My name is uh, Tokam Kanele. Uh, I'm a retired uh, colonel from the Papua New Guinea Defence Force. I joined the Army in 1977 and retired in uh, 2016. 
and Tokam Kaleli is a man who's been around. He was in Bougainville during the conflict. He was head of Papua New Guinea's intelligence agency. And for nine years, he was Papua New Guinea's defense attache in Indonesia. Each of these threads of his life would make for an interesting episode alone. But I wanted to ask him specifically about his experiences in defense cooperation. He has a lot of them. I got a couple of uh, training in uh, USA, generally. I attended the school at uh, Fort Ochoca in Arizona. And uh, I went back to uh, Fort Leavenworth, where we went to the command school for the United States Army in uh, Kansas for one year. When I was there, I got promoted to uh, Lieutenant Colonel after the course. Uh, also, I went to uh, Waikiki Trade Center, where we attended the Center for Asian Security. I spent three months in uh, Hong Kong with the British Gekas there before the transfer back to China. Serving with the British Gekas, they were real tough people, you know, fearless people. We were doing uh, motor training with them and uh, the helicopter deployed us forward into the hills and suddenly cloud covered and the plane, the helicopter did not come back and we were shivering and carrying on but the Gekas drank uh, rum and we all survived. I went to uh, China with our defense minister and, you know, we went up to the Great Wall of China. And uh, that's a that's an achievement, you know. One of the biggest bloody man-made structures, the Great Wall of China, I went up there and I, I felt uh, very happy. So when you go to the USA or when you go on these courses, what are you thinking? Are you thinking, what do these people want with me or... What do I try to get out of it? Or how can I serve my country? What, what are you thinking? You know that expression, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Like, what are you thinking when you get sent to these places? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And networking is a very important component of uh, going to friendly countries. So it makes it easier to communicate and uh, exchange uh, information. It's important that we keep touch with our uh, in Australia and New Zealand and America. Colonel Kaleli's answers reminded me of those that we also heard during our scholarship episode. Living abroad helped him understand these countries in a way just interacting with their agents on the ground in Port Moresby could not. I wanted to find out if all this defense reform work was generating wider influence. And I reached back out to a person I met many years ago in Dili who was conducting his doctoral research on this very topic. And he's someone who's still keeping a close watch on this issue. My name is Louis Alexander Berg, and I am an assistant professor of political science at Georgia State University in Atlanta. Uh, and I've been doing research for several years now on development of states in countries affected by civil war and looking especially at the security sector. So I've got a book out this past year called Governing Security After War, which looks at efforts by international actors to restructure police and military forces and focuses in on the politics of how that works and how domestic politics within those countries shapes what happens. I mean, this is a pretty standard part of statecraft, right? I mean, you look through the history books in the Pacific and you see that Australia, the United States, Japan have been training militaries for as long as these institutions have existed. I mean, are we ever going to reach the point, Alex, where a donor comes in or an outside state comes in and says, you know what, I think we've done enough defense reform. I think we're kind of done here. 
we don't really need to do any more of it. Um, well, that's that's an interesting question. And, you know, I, I think when we talk about defense reform, we do need to distinguish between what's kind of domestically uh, driven reform, right, which happens in, in any country and, and reform processes that are driven by donors. Among the funded or donor promoted reforms, the majority of programs really focus on training and equipment, but there are a small kind of handful of programs that, that get into defense sector reform, management governance, and trying to improve the way the, the systems work. And Ideally, those two things are in sync, right? So, you know, a country sees a, an issue and so they say, oh, you know, is there a donor that can help us with the technical or financial resources to help us do that? Um, and the donor provides that. In reality, though, um, donors fund this for a, a variety of different reasons, most of which have to do with their own strategic interests, right? So they want to maintain a, a relationship or a partnership or an alliance with a strategically important country. They want to help with counterterrorism or, or some kind of other strategic goal. And they see a professional or effective security force as important to that in that country. And so they offer some assistance. To get to your question, you're unlikely to really see the end of that as long as donors have an interest for geostrategic reasons, usually, in maintaining relationships with countries, they're going to keep wanting to provide resources and, and help improve those, right? You know, unless there's a, a real drastic change in the geostrategic situation, that's going to continue. And of course, there's always need for reform, right? Even in the, you know, wealthiest countries in the United States is constantly in processes of defense reform, you know, whether it's trying to incorporate new technology, like the, you know, so-called revolution military affairs or um, oversight reforms that as we had in the 1980s, right? Every, every year that there's a defense authorization act in the United States, there's some reform introduced as part of that, right? So, so there's always a need for reform, and then there's always some interest, some strategic interest by donors in providing it. So and to answer your question, no, probably not. So I guess like if you take what you're saying to its logical conclusion, it's really about donor interest more than anything else. I guess then next question is, why are these programs so focused on identifying technical issues and solving them, you know, putting up new buildings, doing more trainings, et cetera? as opposed to anything that really gets to the heart of how the security sector actually works. And by that, I'm thinking, like, why aren't we looking at issues about budgeting, issues of transparency, issues of civilian oversight? The people who are involved are technicians, right? So, you know, you've got the way that it works in, in the United States, for example, Congress appropriates funds to the Defense Department and the State Department to carry out these programs, and they, in turn, assign them to, to different agencies Right. And ultimately, the money gets to programs within most of which are in the Defense Department, which are staffed by uh, military personnel. Right. And so they're people whose experience and whose expertise is about how to carry out the operational aspects of the security sector. And so those are the kinds of resources that they bring. Another reason, and, and there's kind of a whole political economy around this, is a lot of the programs are focused on equipment. Right. So you provide countries with new types of equipment. You need to train them on how to use them, on how to maintain them. Right. So a lot of it, there's a whole kind of infrastructure of training around all of that equipment. The problem is that in many cases that doesn't work because the overall system is actually not set up to do that. So it turns out that if you look at many defense systems or institutions around the world, in the West, we think they're set up to fight battles, right, to fight external enemies. In most countries around the world, there are very few external threats, right? So security forces have evolved to do very different things. Right? They're there to um, quell opposition, to mobilize people to vote, um, to provide jobs to politically important people. Right? And if that's what security forces are set up to do, it's no surprise that you, know, you give them technical skills, they're not going to end up doing what you ask them to do. 
you know, to take a very crude analogy, right? You want to build a house to build your house. You need plumbers, you need, you know, electricians, carpenters, right? Technicians. And if you, you know, you have those good people, you might have a house, but if the design of your house is flawed or, you know, you've got a design for an office, you're not going to get a functional house. So if your, you know, army is set up to provide jobs to people, not to actually be an effective fighting force, um, you can put all kind of technical aspects that you want, and it's not going to become a more effective fighting force. It's going to just keep doing what it is really meant to do, which is provide jobs for people. All right. So you've like, you've conjured this image in my mind of something that happened to me years ago. And it was this conference that I went to in Brisbane. It was a conference about kind of post-conflict reconstruction and how could states that are working in the Pacific kind of operate well together. And this conference had as its centerpiece this case study about a fictitious country and had all the elements and difficulties written into the case study. And it was really asking the participants that were attending the conference to kind of work through how they would resolve some of these issues on the ground. And, you know, it had ethnic challenges, it had pockets of resistance, it had challenges within the security sector, and it had challenges of accountability. And it had all these kind of wicked problems that anyone intervening in this country would have to confront. And I'd say the case study was maybe about five pages of closely written, single-spaced text. And I was assigned on the table with a senior military officer from, uh, I've had strategic amnesia as to where the country was from. And what was really interesting, we had 15 minutes to read this paper and then talk about our responses. And the military guy didn't read any of it. He just said, right, we're gonna put a perimeter up around the key areas, we're gonna secure the airport. That's what we're gonna do. And it really made me sort of think about that for all the work that you're doing, thinking about the politics of the security sector, at the technical level, it's actually really technicians who see the world in a very, very different way, the way you're describing. The next question, I guess, is what can we do? What can we, as outside states, do more in terms of really understanding the politics of the security sector? And then I guess the question is like, as outside states really interested in understanding the politics and these institutional complexities, are they only interested in doing kind of front of house things? Because that's how they think how they get influence. That's a very interesting question. Um, I think it really depends is, is the answer. Um, I think there are cases where, you know, the country is interested for a variety of reasons in building more effective institutions, right? Because they actually want more effective forces, right? And there are cases where that's really not of interest to them. I was at a seminar recently where there were some um, U.S. military officers who'd been involved in, in, in managing programs overseas, and one of them related this anecdote of being in the, the office of the Minister of Defense in, in, I think it was a country in, in Africa, and kind of, you know, having this discussion and saying, well, we came here offering this kind of training program, but we kind of did our assessment and we think this isn't really what you need, right? There's, you know, a lot more effective things that you can do. And, and the minister kind of closed the door and said, you don't really get why you're here, do you? Um, <laughs> no, you're going to keep doing this because this is kind of what, what we want, right? So it's not about making more effective forces. It's about maintaining relationships, right? And if that's what it's about, in some ways, there's, you know, the superficial piece of kind of pouring more resources in, into a situation where you're not actually having an effect um, doesn't really matter because your goal is just to maintain a relationship. So in that case, I would say, yeah, there is sort of no interest. But I think on a broader level, there is interest. I mean, you know, there are cases, say, you know, for, for the United States, like, like Iraq and Afghanistan, 
where it soon became very clear, you know, the U.S. was pouring money and the resources were not only not working, but they were being misused and going directly against what the U.S. was trying to achieve in that case. And so, you know, it became very important to start understanding what was really going on, right? And, and there were a lot of efforts towards that. And, you know, even in a case, say, in, in West Africa, in the Sahel, in a place like Mali, where, you know, the U.S. and European countries have basically pulled out, there's just an announcement um, yesterday that France pulled out of Burkina Faso, right? And that has everything to do with the politics, right? So not only is the lack of understanding the politics threatening the immediate goal of more effective security forces, it's also undermining the overall relationship, especially in a strategic context where you have competition from various countries. So I, I think it is increasingly becoming evident to donor countries that, yes, it is important to understand these politics. And it's important because it, the, the resources are not having the effect that they want them to have. So much defense training and support is often for hypothetical situations, yet this wasn't the case in Vanuatu. For everyone on the ground, the hypothetical suddenly became a reality. Just days after we spoke to Ben, Cyclones Judy and then Kevin came barreling into the country. And we checked in with Ben a few weeks after the Cyclones to get his assessment of how the Vanuatu mobile force had gone in terms of disaster response in the wake of the Cyclones and whether all the Australian efforts to make them disaster ready had paid off. Look, they've done well. And, uh, you know, it's been great to see the cooperation between the ADF, the VMF, the France partners, you know, in general, France had a ship here doing some early relief work. New Zealand's provided Hercules aircraft coming in with supplies. We've even had 30 Fijian troops also arrive to assist with the cleanup. So, um, yeah, look, it's been a good team effort, I guess, from around the region to deploy quickly. HMAS Canberra was deployed quite quickly. So I think they were here within three or four days of the cyclone and immediately got to work. I saw, you know, a lot of cooperation between them. I was down at the hospital, the main hospital in Port Villa, and saw VMF and Australian soldiers working together, cutting up wood and rebuilding the maternity ward, putting the roof back on in a few places. Uh, so yeah, that, that kind of cooperation, I think, just gets deeper and deeper. As you mentioned, I was doing those first recordings on the eve of Cyclone Judy, so the, the wind and the rain was already starting to pick up and even affect the audio. So it was good timing just to get up there, you know, on the eve, because pretty much straight after that, we got hammered for about four days. So I'd reached the end of this eight-episode quest into how much influence these programs bought. And like a good consultant, it was time to present my report and key findings to Joanne. Okay, Gordon, where are you now? Well, I'm in Majuro. I'm in the Republic of Marshall Islands, and I've just stepped out of a place called the Toek Bar and Grill, which is in the top floor of the tallest building in Marshall Islands. So it's like five floors. And it's this sort of 
Rex Cafe type of place. It's got journalists, it's got business people, it's got embassy sorts. I mean, the first person I met was the chief of police who was slamming down a Budweiser. And it's got all these kind of sports. It's kind of the American Pacific, the Marshall Islands. You know, you've got US sports playing on big TVs all around. And I'll tell you what, Joanne, I'll give the Australian embassy full credit for their clear sightedness as their mission to the Marshall Islands is located one floor below this bar and everyone in this bar appears to be engaged in some form of state craftiness one way or another. Now I know you're a consummate professional so I'm sure you were there strictly in the bar for research purposes am I correct? Yeah well it all depends how artfully I write this up in my trip report for you Joanne but it's, <laughs> it's kind of interesting that in a small network place like this I mean the whole of the marshals has about 50,000 people by the last census this theme that's been playing through, you know, this whole series is becomes vividly, palpably true. You know, this idea that people are policy and individuals are influenced because, you know, I just stepped out. But on the table beside me, someone was ventilating about a previous embassy official who'd gone a little bit feral here. And the table I was on, I was talking to a journalist who was kind of expounding over multiple Bud Light about a previous ambassador who was kind of personally pleasant in how he worked. And, you know, in small network places like Majuro or Daily we heard from or Honiara, really throughout the Pacific, comportment matters. And it's really, really noticed. Yeah, this has been one of the really interesting findings of this season, hasn't it? Has been that the individuals that are practicing statecraft are so important. And we hadn't thought of that really in advance. It hadn't been what we went into this thinking that we would necessarily find. So uh, it's been really interesting to hear you on your journey. Now, what's the goss? What are people talking about in this bar? Are they mentioning China? Are they talking about grand strategy, submarines, Pacific pivots? What's the, what's the lowdown? You know, they're talking about the karaoke party, I think it's going to be going on in a few days. I mean, I mean, the really interesting thing I find just from being here is that in the Northern Pacific, this kind of set of states that are in free association with the United States, the rules are kind of reversed. It's Australia that is up here that has a bit of a new car smell about it. And it's the US that is the dominant actor here. And so everyone sort of speaks about the US as the kind of hegemon. It's the kind of reverse flip of what is done in Melanesia, where Australia for the longest time has been the dominant donor. And now the United States is coming in as part of its own kind of statecraft and policy objectives in the Pacific. And it makes me think, you know, that in our imaginary in Australia, when we think of the Pacific, we often condense it down. We sort of group it as the South Pacific, places like Papua New Guinea, like Solomon Islands, like Vanuatu, like Fiji, we don't really think of places in the Northern Pacific, places like the Marshalls, the Federated States of Micronesia, I meant to go there next week. And, you know, we probably think less of Polynesia, um, which is more, I think, of a kind of New Zealand sort of domain. And I think complete unknown in our mental maps, you and I as, as English speakers, is the quote unquote French Pacific, you know, New Caledonia, little bit, but um, Tahiti, uh, Wallace and Fortuna, that whole swath of the Pacific that is the French Empire, which is a different status to other parts of the Pacific as well. Okay, Gordon. So what I'm hearing is that season two might be focusing beyond the South Pacific into the North Pacific, French Pacific, and 
into Polynesia? Is that where we're well, heading? That's kind of like where I'd like to take it. But I obviously being a good kind of consultant, Joanne, I need to go and check in with the boss. As yes. to whether that's a good idea. I mean, does that make sense to you? Because I often think sometimes we telescope the Pacific as in the kind of states that are on Australia's fringe. Okay, well, look, I will have to put this to tender and I will look forward to seeing your formal bid, Gordon. Okay. Like a full work plan, of course, as well. Yeah. And I'm sure the memo will be on my desk by the morning and, you know, we will need a full memorandum of understanding on this. But I think for the moment we could come to an in-principle agreement that your mission in season two is to manfully go forth into the bars (laughs) <laughs> of Micronesia, Polynesia and the French Pacific. Drink as many pina coladas as you can and discover what is happening with influence in those parts of the Pacific that Australia often has less understanding of. And do I get an expense account for this sort of liquid voyage that I might propose? Checks in the mail. All expenses must be itemised and fully receipted. <laughs> Okay, another tasking from Joanne then. We'll get on to it and see you back here at the end of the year for another series of Statecraftiness. And if you, dear listener, have any ideas on angles or stories about statecraft in the Pacific and Timor-Leste, or even a burning desire to appear on the podcast, don't hesitate to get in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm your host, Gordon Peake. Mark Peter Nataras and Shanna Ryan at Cultural Pulse produce the podcast. Joanne Wallace at University of Adelaide is the executive producer. Luther Knut is the sound engineer and producer. This activity was supported by the Australian government through a grant by the Australian Department of Defence to the University of Adelaide. The views expressed are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Australian government, the Australian Department of Defence or the University of Adelaide.